Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. So when I was growing up, we lived by a lake not too far from our house, and it was sort of the spot that we went to play every summer. Um, and there was sort of like the ideal setup. There was a playground, and there was a sandy beach, and then there was, of course, the water. It had a little sort of like raft in the water that you could swim out to and play in. Um, it was honestly a ton of fun. And, but then one year, we showed up at the beach, and it had signs all over it saying that the, the lake was closed because the water had become somehow too hazardous for us to swim in, which made me go... We were swimming in that last year, right? <laughs> but we didn't understand then that there was something in the water, something growing, not fish, right? Maybe it was growing on fish. I don't know. But like th there was something in the water. And maybe you've heard that classic parable about fish swimming, right? Where the older fish swims by these two younger guys and he's like, hey boys, how's the water? And the younger fish look at one another and they go, what's water? because they can't see that they're swimming in it and they don't understand what's around them. And sometimes that's true of us where what we swim in or the air we breathe, we're not quite sure what's all there. And the disciples here in Mark's gospel are swimming in a particular water, a kind of culture. And even though they're fishermen, they can't see it at all. They don't understand that stuff has surrounded them culturally in the first century in terms of what it meant for them to be a Jew that made it almost impossible for them to pick up what Jesus was putting down. There were some culturally fixed, informed notions of God and of the Messiah that they couldn't even see. If you notice, Jesus doesn't start out by telling these guys about the cross. Right? He waits a whole year and a half, perhaps two years in, to them following him, traveling around, doing ministry, teaching, working miracles, to finally say to them, hey, by the way, I'm going to the cross, and it won't end well for me there. And after he tells them that, hey, I'm going to the cross, he turns to them and says, hey, and you're coming with, right? You're invited to follow me there, to take up your own cross, and that's part of what it means at the core. That's part of what's essential, what's non-negotiable for following Jesus, is to lay down your life and take up your cross and follow him. That's what it means to follow the soon-to-be crucified king. Obviously, this doesn't go over very well with the disciples, right? Like, we have the perspective of, hey, like, we're, we're after the story, right? But they're in the middle of the story, and, like, they cannot stomach this by any means. But we shouldn't judge them too quickly because even though we're after their story, we're still in the middle of ours. And it's pretty clear that to follow Jesus will involve some kind of challenge and sacrifice for us as well if we're to do it in a biblical way. So listen, I want to talk as plainly as I can today about this journey to the cross and what it meant for the disciples and then what it means for us. 
And so I'm going to reflect kind of broadly on this chapter in, a, in, in three ways. But I think by the end, you'll see why. Because everything in chapter 9 comes after what? Well, chapter 8, right? It comes in, pastor, like, that's brilliant. Like everything in chapter 9 comes after chapter 8, meaning the, the, the challenge to lose your life to save it comes right here, and then on the heels of it comes a transfiguration of Jesus, right? This father and son story of, I believe, help my unbelief, comes right after what? To lose your life, or to save your life, you must lose it, right? This sort of foretelling of the death and resurrection, the arguing about who is the greatest, the, the children, the father, the son language in multiple spaces, and the whatever causes you to sin, all of that comes where? After, to save your life, you must lose it. Mark is connecting the dots all the way through this chapter for the disciples because Jesus is trying to connect dots for them. He's trying to help them see what it means to follow the crucified king and particularly why they can't. So that's our first part. Why can't they, why can't we follow the crucified king? And of course, the simple answer is because he's not the king we want, right? Like, he wasn't the king they wanted, and in some respects, he isn't the king that we want. Like Peter, this, this king who has a purpose, embraces weakness, and, and chooses the slowness of the cross, is completely contrary to us. And we have our own set of cultural pressures and personal choices that make it so that we swim in a water different than the way of the cross. In fact, we follow more the way of the crowd than the way of the cross in our society. I mean, the glory for us as a society is the crowd. That's where the glory's at, right? Wherever the crowd is, there's popularity. Wherever the crowd is, there's some measure of success. Wherever the crowd is, there's power. And now you might not be immediately grabbed by the ideas of popularity, success, and power, but let's think again. I mean, for many of us, we can't make it to our lunch break without having some thought of how are we going to be received or well-liked by the other people around us? Popularity, right? We read our, the reactions of others to our words. We change our, our voice, our behavior, our patterns of acting simply to sort of make ourselves amenable or likable to others. For us, sometimes to be disliked is like hell on earth. But to be liked and to be valued by others is to be heaven and bliss. It could be the same for success, right? I mean, like, many of us don't just want to do well, right? Like, for, for a lot of us, to get the W is not, like, a nice thing. To get the W is a must. Like, we have to win. There is no question about it. It might even mean for us that, like, the desire to achieve kind of flows through our veins, almost like oxygen to the brain. And when we don't, something feels like we've lost our mind. Bigger is better. More is what we need. Success comes naturally to us. And then, of course, there's power, which you're like, I'm not, I'm not out for power, okay? But what about the right to choose what you do or when you do it? 
What about some authority over your schedule? What about the ability to perhaps shape how someone might think or choose something? You ever wanted power over the way someone else acted? What about if it's not authority, if it's ability? You know, there's a moment here with the disciples where they can't do something. Did you see it? Right? The father comes with this son with an evil spirit, and they're like, we're trying, but nothing's happening. Have you ever been in a moment where you can't seemingly do something? How frustrating is it when you don't have the power, to, the ability to do it? These are things that we crave. Make no mistake, Peter and the others, they wanted a king who was popular, a king who was successful, a king who was powerful. I mean, after all, they had a Roman government to overthrow. They had a Jewish religious system to put right, right? There was work to be done. What is this weakness and death stuff? Our minds like Peter are lock set on the things of man, the ways of the world. And it makes me wonder what sort of culturally informed, fixed assumptions we have about Jesus. Because we are not in first century Judaism, last I checked, but we are in the 21st century in America. And so perhaps the Jewish assumption of a conquering Messiah, one who would rule and conquer and reign, isn't ours. But I think you could say, it's probably safe to say that our assumptions is that Jesus should be a comforting Messiah. We treat Jesus like the cosmic therapist, always ready, sitting for us, waiting to hear about our needs and wants, always there for our self-help efforts to get the things that we really want, things like popularity, success, and power, right? He's the one who helps us get the things that we most want, because what we don't most want is who? Him. He's just helping us along. You can see these things, can't you? Right When you only come to Jesus with your worry and not your worship. right When you only ask him for the things you want rather than saying, Lord, what do you want? What are you asking me to do? When you only desire to feel better rather than say, how can I sacrifice to be godlier? So here's the deal. The real Jesus does conquer. And the real D- Jesus is a comforter. But the thing that I believe Mark is pushing here and the thing that I think the Holy Spirit wants among our community is for us to see that Jesus is a crucified Messiah. He is the crucified king who says no to the glory of the crowd and chooses the glory of what? The cross. The cross is his glory. He says no. He rejects popularity, success, power. And that's part of what makes Jesus so unique, so different. He wasn't about the center stage show. He was, I mean, he was operating in rural, small towns. Crowds were chasing after him. He was not seeking them. He didn't have to buddy up to the religious leaders of the day. In fact, they were always griping with him. Listen, Peter and the disciples are more than rough around the edges. They just don't get it. And to some extent, neither do we. 
Like they were hardened in their own approaches to the kingdom. Their hearts were not sort of like soft clay ready to be molded and shaped, right? Like they were not even wet cement. There was like hardened concrete going on that Jesus was trying to bust up so that he could pave anew. Like I I hope you can see this as you read through just the collection of events in chapter 9, right? I mean, in verse 33 and 34, we have them arguing about who's the best, like, who's the greatest? Like, who's going to get the most recognition out of us? Like, Jesus says, well, let me show you who. Here's the child. And the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Backwards. They're puzzled about the resurrection. And rather than ask the best teacher they've ever seen in the entire world, what do they do? They keep it to themselves. They're comparing themselves to others doing ministry. Hey, we saw this guy. He was doing ministry. He, let's, let's have him stop. And Jesus is like, no, no. Whoever's not against us is for us, right? They're not peaceful but quarreling. They're not young at heart. They're old at heart. They're not soft but hardened. They're not salty for sure. So I think about my own discipleship to Jesus every time I drive down 35W. I don't know if you guys have this moment where like you're driving in the lanes trying not to look at all the construction that's happening right next to you, right? But like I'm, I'm just like looking, watching it. And the amazing thing is like you see the mountains of like gravel that's been broken to bits on the side of your road. And then you realize that that was the old freeway that's been crushed up, re-ground, it will be used to pave the new one. That's the kind of discipleship Jesus is working in me. And that's the kind of crucified life that Jesus is working in these disciples. He's breaking stuff up so that he can pave it anew. It's not a subtle shift. It's a complete overhaul once it gets realigned and reformed. The reason they can't follow the crucified king is because they don't want one. They look at that rock crusher and go, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, 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 I'm heading this way. How can we then? Part two, how can we follow the crucified king? What's our hope? Well, here in this chapter, the only way that they start to follow, and in fact, the only way Jesus finds his way to the cross is through the transfiguration. It's through transfiguration moments. That's how. That's the only hope you and I have to actually follow the way of the crucified king. Because here's what you see on the mountaintop. You see Jesus embraces youth like as a son before the father. And you see Jesus rest in his love and in this cloud that's overpowered. You see Jesus looking ahead to the way of the cross. And the mountaintop is actually the way that he gets energized and strengthened to go. The funny thing is, when you first read the transfiguration, you're like, glory, like this is, this is God. But I think it's the opposite. I think the humanity of Jesus is most revealed here on the mountaintop. Notice how you, you have Jesus with Elijah and Moses on the mountaintop. And then you have God, surely there's divinity there. God the Father is speaking to the Son. But, but look at, here's what's going on. On the mountaintop, 
Jesus is standing there with all of God's past work. Think of the crazy things that Moses had done. Leading a people out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness, giving God's instruction and commandments, and then all the way up to the promised land, which he can't go in. So you see the past work that's done through Moses, but it was a work that was incomplete. And the same thing is true with Elijah. Maybe you're not familiar with Elijah's story, but the amazing prophet, like, put away all of these false prophets, stood up to an incredibly corrupt leadership of Israel in terms of in Ahab. It's an amazing story, but he burns out, gets depressed, wants to die, and in the end, he doesn't even face the music, but God miraculously, like, sends chariots of fire and carries him away. But Jesus is going to face a different fate. He actually is going to face the music and complete a work that Elijah couldn't even get to. You see past work, and then you see the Father speaking identity to Jesus, strengthening him for what? The future work of the cross for him to complete. But here's the deal. This moment is not just for Jesus. I mean, if it was, he would have gone alone. But he knew he needed to bring Peter, James, and John with him. He knew that this moment was also for them, that they were one day going to be spiritual leaders on their own path of ministry, advancing the kingdom with their own kind of suffering awaiting them. Jesus knew that this was also for them. This was a transfiguration moment, not just for him, but for them as well. When you look at what transfiguration means, it becomes super clear. But this is the word in the New Testament for transformation. This is the word that we get metamorphosis from. Look, look at the other passages where this comes from. This is Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Maybe you know it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Do not be conformed to the world. That's the things of man, right? Be transformed. Be transfigured by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good, acceptable, and perfect. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's transfiguration right there. That's metamorphosis. And then, perhaps even better, in 2 Corinthians, and we all, Paul says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, what? Transformed transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, the transfiguration is for their transformation. The transfiguration is for their metamorphosis. There's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit meeting with them that they might be made new so that not just Jesus could walk the road to the cross, but that they could walk the road to the cross. And if we are going to walk any kind of cruciform life, we need our own transfiguration moments as well. We need to meet with the Lord who is our Father and who speaks identity to us as sons and daughters. We need the cloud, which of course Habakkuk tells us is the Holy Spirit overshadowing, empowering, strengthening. And we need the Lord Jesus, the one who's gone before us to the cross so that we could walk and follow the crucified king. 
We need transfiguration. Transfiguration. See, he was strengthened on the mountaintop to walk the road ahead. And just like he, we need to grow young because sin has made us old. It has made us doubting. It has made us hardened. And we need to be softened in heart to come as children before the Father so that we might be strengthened for what's ahead. I mean, think about this. Right? Here, here's the good news. If we're going to have any hope of rejecting popularity and success and power, we need good news, right? We need God's work to pave the way for our path forward. And that's what we have in Jesus, right? It's of course what we have, because on the cross, he rejected any kind of popularity so that we might know the embrace of the Father that we were made for. You see, it's not that popularity, it's bad, but it's been twisted by sin because what we really need is affirmation and love. On the cross, he, was reject he rejected success. I mean, he was an all-out failure by all appearances so that the seed of the kingdom could be sowed in the ground so that it might bring forth new life, spreading around the globe as it's done today, and that it might bring new life into your own soul, even planted in the smallest of seeds. The cross is what you need to embrace so that you can find new life in your own soul. See, on the cross, the way Jesus rejected the power of the world, embracing weakness. That's what we need. We need his weakness, which could free us from our own self-interest, our own need to have our way, so that we, like him, could serve God and others, even when it means sacrifice, challenge. Jesus was transfigured that we might be transformed. That's what's screaming from these pages. He was crucified so that our lives might be cruciformed. But how can we follow the king? We follow him to the mountaintop. But let me make it practical for you. Lest we just have an experience here, but don't change our lives in light of it. Here's part three. What practical steps can you take to actually pursue transfiguration yourself? All right, I got a couple, and then I'll be out your way. Number one, you need to detach. You need to detach to be with Jesus. Did you catch it? The three, Peter, James, and John, they leave the rest. Jesus leaves the rest. You have to have a pattern of detaching from the noise and the busyness of our world if you will ever encounter transfiguration moments. I don't know what that means for you. Maybe that means a walk on your lunch break or an early morning. Maybe it means you shut off your social media for a week. I don't know what it means, but like, how are you going to detach from the busyness and the hustle so that you might experience the slowness of a moment with the Lord? You have to detach and be with Jesus. And you want to know the, the reason why? Because he desires you. He wants you. He's saying, it's as if you're Peter, James, and John. He's saying, come with me to the mountain. Will you go? To go means you must detach at some level. Number two, you have to practice silence. I mean, you have to practice silence to listen to Jesus. Silence, again, is so countercultural in our world. 
But if you don't practice silence, you probably won't ever listen. You won't believe that the Lord wants to speak. I mean, it's such a funny moment, right? Where Peter's like, hey, here's a tent. Let's One for you, and one for you, and one for you. Let's get tents and stay here. And God is just like, quiet. You know, like, listen to him. He's my beloved son. Have we quieted ourselves? What's your practice of silence? I exhort you, try two minutes and see if you can do it. Can you stop and just be quiet for two minutes at the beginning of the day, the end of the day, in the middle of the day to say, I'm here waiting for you to speak? Number three, be honest. Be honest because you see the disciples hiding from Jesus constantly right? They're hiding from Jesus their questions and their wonderings about who he is and what he's saying. And then they're hiding from Jesus their conversations about who is the greatest and what their pride was, is leading them to do. And then you see the exhortation for Jesus to literally cut off everything that leads them to sin. If you want to be transformed by the living God, you have to bring the real you before him. Stop hiding. What is the Lord asking you to cut off? Are you willing to name it, to bring it? And then, number four, remember. Remember the work of Jesus. You can't mistake Jesus as remembering the acts of God of old as he gets ready for a new act of God. Can you do the same? What is your act of remembering all that God has done for you circumstantially in your life? What is your practice of remembering what he's done on the cross? All that God has done to save you. Have you said like the Father, I believe, help my unbelief. Let me remember the works that you've done. Should should have been the disciples saying that, but it wasn't. Will it be us? I believe, help my unbelief. Let me remember who you are because you're the Lord who saves and you're also the Lord who sends. Listen, if you're going to follow the crucified king, you've got to see his love for you and you've got to see how he walks to and through the cross for you, how he rejected power and popularity and success. You know, part of our act of silence and remembering, part of our patterns of detaching come every Sunday as we respond to God in worship. We try to shape an intentional time where we remember what God has done. That's the Lord's Supper. That's communion. We try and carve some time for you to be silent before the Lord, to pray and to respond to what his word has said. And would you even take that moment today to just seek the Lord in response right here, right now, asking him to speak, asking him to move? I mean, I joke with my Catholic and my Lutheran friends, but like what we're going to celebrate in communion, right? It's, It's not about the transformation of the bread and the wine. It's about the transformation of you. You into the likeness of Jesus. So let's respond.
Here's how we're going to do it today. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. Like having heard from God and our hearts now open to speak with God, to wrestle with God, I want you to pray in response. Pour out your heart before him. We're going to sing. Having gazed at God in all of his glory, we're going to open our mouths then and sing of his goodness and his glory. We're going to give. Right? Having heard and received from God, we're going to open our finances and give to the advancement of God's kingdom. You can give at the back table there. You can give through our app. You can give regularly on my, online. That's part of our response to God. And then we're going to eat. Meals are often the way that we celebrate. But this is a celebration. It's a celebration remembering what God has done, a special meal. And so if you believe Jesus is the crucified king, would you partake of communion today? And if you don't, would you still respond to God? But would you refrain from this act of remembrance? So there's communion, um, wafers, and juice on the back table there. I invite you to go partake as you're ready today. I'm going to pray for the meal, give you a chance to eat it on your own and respond to what God is doing in your own soul. Father in heaven, we ask you to hear our prayers, to receive our songs, to welcome our gifts, and to nourish and confirm our faith at your table. We remember now the crucified king, broken body and shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. And we say, strengthen us, Lord, to follow. Not just the comforting, not just the conquering, but the crucified Messiah. And like the Book of Common Prayers instructs us, we pray that we don't presume to come to your table, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold mercy. We're not even worthy to gather the crumbs up from the table, but you're a God of generosity whose property is to always have mercy. So pleading your grace, we come. In Jesus' name, amen.